We're in a system, we're in a world, and the world is causing problems. And so I do think it's incumbent on people who deliver care to people who need psychological care to help them understand that there are structures that are working against them so that they can be intentional about how they create their own world. If you don't have an analysis of what's being done to you, how are you going to ever get better? Hi everyone, this is Ava Bravada-Keating, and welcome to Psychologies of Liberation, a podcast that examines the goals and practices of psychology with radical imagination to help us all get free. This podcast is for all of us world builders who are not only interested in grappling with systems, structures, and ideologies that threaten our well-being, but who dream into new futures for relationship that are grounded in joy, equity, and everyone's right to beautiful, radiant things. Today I'm speaking with union organizer and dear friend Sandra Vanderven about her work mapping out a functional behavioral health ecosystem in Washington state. We discuss the ways in which we value and devalue mental health work, the links between psychiatric care and carceral systems, bullshit jobs, and the interdisciplinary nature of organizing and therapeutic work. I hope you enjoy. Will you introduce yourself in the way that you want to be known? Oh, um, yeah, Sandra Vanderven, and I am a woman in my 50s, and I'm a mother, and I'm an organizer. I'm white. I started as a community organizer in my 40s when I was just, you know, coming back to my my values, you know, after, after um, just kind of trying to you know, in my 20s and 30s, it was like, okay, time to start, you know, with the whole, like, getting married and having children and getting a job and, you know, doing life according to the recipe, you know. And then after going through that and realizing that it wasn't really serving me, I started paying more attention and found myself volunteering as an organizer and then realized that I should just do it all the time and got a job as an organizer. And then at a labor union? Uh, nope, at a place that was doing uh, political advocacy. Mm-hmm. And then just, you know, again, like my disillusionment with the system, partly I feel like the political sphere, as much as these are the rules that we play by today and need to engage in today in order to, you know, further our goals, um, I still didn't want to be in in it like that. So I spent a little time regrouping and thinking and found the labor union in Seattle where I live that is most aligned with how I view the world. And that's SEIU 1199 Northwest. And I just want to make sure that I'm clear that everything I say is my own personal views and values and not um, necessarily that of my employer. I've been there for eight years. It's always been a woman-led organization, and now it is a woman-of-color-led organization. And for people who haven't lived it, it's transformational in a lot of ways. You know, when you think about the second wave feminism from in the 70s, where the theory was like, well, women can do it just as well, (laughs) which is pretty funny now. You know, but when you think about um, women as the people who make 
babies and nurture and are closer to the fundamental human needs that we give ourselves and our loved ones. I feel like it's really important to realize that we bring something, you know, however we identify. I'm not saying women like people who were born with a certain number of chromo certain type of chromosomes. I'm saying women as a concept, as a notion, as anybody who identifies with womanhood in any way. But it's with a different spirit that we approach problems. We acknowledge our interconnectedness with every victory and we offer grace when we have setbacks. Mm -hmm. And my philosophy, you know, the way I view the world is, has been enhanced by my surroundings at work. Mm -hmm. Not that it's not hard. Right. So you are an organizing lead for behavioral health team. Is that right? Will you, will you say what you do and maybe a little bit about um, the, your, your members and the concerns that you hear from them mm -hmm. and the, the aspirations that you hear from them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have all sorts of different people who work in behavioral health in this union and there are lots of different settings. You know, there are state psych hospitals, there are outpatient clinics. It's a big landscape and it's a complicated landscape. And we have members who do all sorts of amazing work. There's housing, permanent supportive housing. Um, and when I started leading this team, we started a really cool new adventure in bringing together the people who have been sort of working alongside one another in leadership of their union, members who have been leading their union for long enough that they've got a really developed sense of um, where we can go and what we can do together. And getting them all together for quarterly retreats to talk about what is this entire system look like. And we've started working on a map that is the first of its kind that depicts the entire behavioral health system in Washington state. And from that sort of visualization, we've had some really poignant conversations about how um, the structures facilitate our work and how they make our work harder. And what that's doing is it's bringing some of the big dramatic problems into relief. And so we are engaged in this interesting conversation right now about how do we tackle those problems together? Because we have a lot of power, you know, we have members who work in behavioral health, but, and we have allies who, um, you know, everybody wants us to succeed at helping people get better, you know, so there's political allies, there's other unions. So we can multiply our effects quite a lot if we're strategic. So yeah, our work is really just beginning. Mm -hmm. But it's a matter of imagining something that hasn't been imagined before. Yeah. I'm thinking about looking at the ways in which our discipline operates in the world. What has shaped it? Yeah. How does it shape society? How can we critique current systems mm -hmm. and reach and in, dream into new futures mm -hmm. um, in, uh, in the psychological realm, right, that help us all get free? Oh, God. You know, when I think about the challenges that the members that I work with have, it feels really similar to how I felt when I was a teacher, where the problems of the world were dumped on the schools and everybody looked at the teachers and were like, well, get busy, you know? Yeah. And I feel like that's 
of course, I wouldn't want to minimize any of the amazing good that comes from all of the therapy and all of the help that individual practitioners give to individual people. And yet, the system as it is, the world as it is, is breaking people faster than we can put them back together. And then the system that people are working under to deliver care, at least if it's for the public good, you know, private practice is another matter, but people who work in inpatient psych, public places, um, they are abused and that is not an exaggeration. You know, there are agencies where it's sort of the culture like, yeah, you're gonna get hit. That's how that goes here. Don't come crying to me, you know. There has to be funding, and that comes from the federal government, the healthcare authority, and they are an entity who has established MCOs, the managed care organizations, and those organizations' job is to take that money and make sure that it gets to the places where the care is being delivered. And there have been significant problems with the money getting to where it's supposed to go. And so the agencies will put so much pressure on the people who are delivering care that they are miserable, you know, and everybody's miserable. Um, it's just an exploitive system to correct a thing that never should have happened in the first place. So it's, yeah, it's a train wreck in my point of view. And so like the way I would imagine liberation from this whole thing is, you know, short of going all the way to the source and saying, well, you know, capitalism's a problem, which I don't know how to answer this in any other way, right? But, you know, at least, at least properly care for the people who are caring for people. People who are caring for other people Historically, you know, they're the worst paid and the worst treated. I was listening to this um, old 1990s Marilyn Waring documentary. Are you familiar with her? Mm -hmm. Look up Marilyn Waring, New Zealand MP. Mm -hmm. I'm, it's other people's political systems. Yeah. Um, member of parliament. Yeah. And um, she was, she talks a lot about how she did all this research into economic systems and found that um, they explicitly say, you know, all of the world organizations that govern economics say like, we're just not counting the things that don't produce money. So that would be caring and parenting. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, if you, if you sp spill oil out of an oil tanker, you're creating economic activity. You know, you're paying for people to clean it up, you're buying a new tanker, you're, and if you take care of children, you're not creating economic activity. And so everything that governs everything in every country in the whole world, economically, people who care for others don't count. And so that gets translated into reality that we are nothing short of marginalizing people who give care you know, whether it's mothers or therapists or clinicians, nurses who work in inpatient psych, you know, all of the people involved in the system are, are stigmatized and marginalized. Just the way the people who have psychological problems are stigmatized, even though it was a setup, you know, it was a setup all along. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that we're talking about liberatory psychology, but I think that we're in a system, we're in a world, 
and the world is causing problems. And so I do think it's incumbent on people who deliver care to people who need psychological care to, to help them understand that there are structures that are working against them so that they can be intentional about how they create their own world. Um, and I think that that is liberatory. Like if you don't have an analysis of what's being done to you by the, the systems that are anti-woman and anti-people of color and part of this whole structure is that we blame ourselves. You know, we blame ourselves for getting fat, eating food that's not fucking food. Mm -hmm. You know, we blame ourselves for being lonely when we are living in an entire fucking house all to ourselves, right? If you don't have an analysis of how the economic sphere is written in a, a way that devalues humans, mm -hmm. then how are you going to ever get better? And we have to transition ourselves into a mode of what if? What... And what do we want to build? What do we want to build? What would a functional behavioral health system look like? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I imagine that the answers are vast and varied to yeah. the, like, what does this functional system actually look like that can adequately help people? But I wonder, are there some sort of, like, themes that, mm -hmm. that you hear? Oh, yeah. People being able to get the help they need in a timely manner. Mm, mm, mm -hmm. um, real fundamentals, you know, like, so people who are addicted, right, occasionally will, you know, life will beat them down so hard that they're all right, all right, that's it, I'm ready. And then they can't find treatment, you know, and, and that pause in being able to find treatment is enough to set them all the way back. And it's not just that. Um, if you are at a, an inpatient psych hospital, you can't get released until there's some place to release you to. Placement of people in supportive housing is, as we know, not a great system right now. So there's no place to send people to. So you've had great treatment. You've had great care. These incredible people who are enduring all manner of um, things to be there for you have done their best and you're better and now you can't go anywhere, you're basically incarcerated. And mental illness comes back because you're all positive and happy and you're ready to roll and you can't leave. Mm -hmm. And people relapse or they go backwards in their Regress. recovery. Yeah. Regr mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So going from any program to any other program, there's transitions that happen all the time. And if those are not smooth, same thing. It's a throwing a stick in your spokes, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. You were riding your bike and now you're on the ground. <laughs> Um, and then there's communication. I walk into the door of any psych hospital and I've been in and out of treat, I mean, as a, you know, hypothetical, right? Mm -hmm. It's not me, but you know, I've been in and out of all sorts of treatment. I've been diagnosed. I've been, I'm on medication and I walk in the door and there's not a universal system for sharing medical and psych records. And so you're starting from scratch every single time. You know, just the basics of communicating from one place to another are missing. And this all came from, you know, like a year of these leadership retreats where we're like winnowing it down. Like, okay, well, what would make, you know, like day-long conversations. And, and it's like, 
three different groups are sitting in the room and all having their breakout sessions where they're winnowing down all the worst issues. Like they're looking at a list of maybe 50 or 60 terrible issues, right? Mm -hmm. And they, three separate groups go off into their corners and the instructions have been, let's narrow it down. Let's figure out what the most urgent need is. And they all come back together and they say individually, well, our group came up with communication. You know, Mm -hmm. that's powerful. That's not happening anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So abundantly evident what some of the core things that are necessary for a functional mental health care system are to people and lots of different expressions of that mental health care system, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have folks who are therapists, Mm -hmm. social workers, nurse practitioners, maybe doctors. No doctors. No doctors. Uh, We have doctors in our union, but not specifically psychiatric. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I mean, do you also have other like people who are in supportive roles who aren't necessarily providing mental health care, but, yeah. you know, they're doing like case management or they're doing. Yeah. Um... One of the bulletins that I created for this behavioral health team was actually listed every job in our union that people do in mental health and including environmental services. Yeah. Right. You know, if you are at Hobson Place mopping the floor. You know, you're interacting in the behavioral health care system. Oh, yeah. And um, and I've talked to a lot of people who work in AVS who feel like they're part of the treatment team because the patients and the clients will tell them things and they'll say, oh, yeah, okay. And then they go and find out, you know, who they need to talk to and they have relationships. And that's a big part of all the care is relationships, which also speaks pretty loudly to what's wrong and what's causing this. If a big part of your care is relationships. Mm-hmm what happened in the first place, right? You know? Yeah. I wonder, do people speak a little bit about this sort of economic or financial barriers or what kind of economic system would allow a mental health system to thrive? Oh, well, yeah. I alluded to it when I was talking about Marilyn, Marilyn Waring, where she's like, well, this is what our priorities really are. And it makes perfect sense. And we have to start counting things differently. Valuing labor differently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I believe that things will continue to be challenging until we start counting differently. Our values are not in line with our systems. So money's going in one direction. Funding... (laughs) <laughs> a, a person who sits at the bottom of a missile silo ready to turn a key is gainfully employed. A woman who walks five miles to get water for her family and then spends every waking minute doing care work is not gainfully employed. So we'll continue to be struggling to pay for the care that we need to give people for as long as we find this acceptable. And, um, you know, I don't know what it's going to take for us to stop finding this acceptable. I certainly don't find it acceptable. Here, here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there are plenty of other people who don't as well. And I think you're doing really important connective work, right? Like to actually bring those people in conversation with one another mm-hmm. and to provide the space and the resources and um, facilitation perhaps, right? Like to help imagine something new, mm-hmm. something better. Yeah, it's that takes seriously the like we can't accept this, we can't go on like this. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I'm noticing that when you're saying like, what kind of support do mental health workers need? You're not saying increased wages, right? Oh, they certainly do need more. Well, right. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I think it's really um, interesting that some of the core things that people are asking for mm -hmm. are the tools that they need to be able to be in better relationship with their clients and their patients. People are struggling to be in relationship with their clients and patients against all odds. They're living in poverty to do this work. They are enduring abusive management to do this work. They are working at night, night shift, to do this work. I can't overstate the struggle that people go through to do this because the vast majority of people who do this work are people who care a great deal. Oh yeah. And all I think anyone wants is, is for them to be able to do their dang work, you know, and for people to be able to do their dang work, there have to be people to do it. There have to be adequate staff. There have to be adequate pay. If you can't pay your bills and you can't feed your kids mm -hmm. and you have to work. I mean, there are people who work ungodly amounts of overtime. I can't imagine how you have a family and having, you know, like people are giving their whole lives. I mean, that's what work is anyways, right? Renting yourself out. Yeah. Yeah. Contributing more than you get back under capitalism as well, too. Yeah. I think that most people are suffering silently. You wake up one day and you do your thing, you go to work, you go to school, you're on a conveyor belt, and it doesn't cross a lot of people's minds that we have made choices mm -hmm. that have put you on this particular conveyor belt. And that to be passive is to go along with some bad choices that some people made. And so my dearest wish is that people will learn to reprioritize. In order to see that you're on the conveyor belt, you need to like if you're walking, 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 it's harder to see maybe mm -hmm. than if you zoom out a little bit. Mm, right. Yeah. I mean, and it was, it used to be um, education that allowed people to zoom out. Yeah. And then the, you know, the movement that started in the eighties to sort of squash any innovation and uh, make it all cookie cutter. And then, you know, now it's like, there's a movement to just destroy it all together, you know, but those are the opportunities that allowed me to zoom out. And, uh, People aren't given those opportunities as much as they used to be. And so, you know, on one hand, there are some really incredible things that the younger generations have been doing with putting their foot down on a lot of issues that have been making people's lives harder. And at the same time, there's a general overall trend towards conformity, you know, conformity of thought, conformity. I mean, it's all Marvel movies now. Remember the, I don't know, there was just like, there have been this incredible blossoming of all sorts of different arts and things. And now it's just like, everybody's like, what are you doing? I'm going to a Marvel movie. Like it's, and it's all the same story. Like I can't even understand why. And that's, I feel like there's this been this incredible shrinkage of possibility mm -hmm. in the last few decades. And I didn't know what, what it was for a long time. Well, and you know, when we talk about world building, there are so many mistakes that we make along the way. We are operating from flawed perspectives or, you know, when you try something new, you're not great at it. Like that's just the sort of the nature of it. Mm -hmm. And it's a part of the human condition, right?
So I wonder how we can allow for ruptures as we're doing this work or mistakes or challenges, right? Um, without defaulting to carceral logics or, um, you know, like cancel each other. Right. It is using a tool that you got from our sick society to just turn the tables. And I don't, you know, I don't blame people, right? You find a way to wield some power and you need to wield some power. So use it. I am a, a gentle person and I feel like power should be not tearing people down, but building us up together. And that power comes in community and comes in connection. And so that's not a tool that I would use. Mistakes are made when world building, and yet we are amazingly resilient. And I think a lot of us are thriving under bizarre circumstances. So struggling doesn't mean failure to thrive. So when we try to enact change, we're gonna have to be creative and courageous, and we have to remember that we can do this and that mistakes are okay and that we dust ourselves off and come towards one another and support one another in how do we, how do we move forward mm -hmm. together. You know, and I think we do have to shed the, um, the heroic notions. Mm -hmm. There is none of that. I don't know anybody who's done anything, achieved anything by themselves. Even if you think about Einstein, his wife did everything for him. You know, he did not achieve anything by himself. He couldn't have, you know, and none of the people who have done amazing things have, and we just have to acknowledge that mm -hmm. and understand that when somebody stumbles that we all reach down and grab them, prop them up. Right, I mean, I hope that that's what people do for me when I stumble and fall, which happens a lot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Because that's what it should be, right? But instead, we're all just like, well, you failed, ah, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's just stupid. Mm -hmm. Or we send people to prison. I mean, I think that it's interesting the ways in which, particularly inpatient psych, or even some arms of community mental health and the prison system are just like two sides of the same coin. <sighs> yeah, there's a lot left to be desired. Or also, I should say, like the ways in which carceral systems are the chief provider of mental health care, right? Yep. Yeah. It's a problem. Or you were talking about isolation and how that's not something that we should do to children. It's also not something that we should ever do to people who are incarcerated, right? No. Like, I want to hear more psychologists or mental health workers say, like, no, we will not accept solitary confinement. Right. I mean, it's back to um, what do we decide that we'll pay for, you know, and we'll pay for isolation will pay for solitary confinement. As a culture, we've decided that um, we'll pay for all the private prisons. And the other thing that's really important to understand is that similar to private prisons, where there are corporations who are making a profit from incarceration, which, you know, there's no money in it. So what does that mean? That means severe understaffing to the point where you are having to use isolation because that's the only way to keep people from rising up, you know, and people are being given food that's not food, you know, and I, and I've heard, um, like, it's like dog food. I've heard that it's rotten. I don't know, you know, I'm not the closest to that kind of work. Um, but it's clear that our values in our country have set it up so that we abuse prisoners 
for the sake of profit. And um, that is precisely what's going on in medical care and in behavioral health care. Even places that are not for profit, like Swedish Hospital, now Providence, the Sisters of Providence, we're uh, you know, an organization that's here to give care, right? Except for that there's, they've got billions of dollars in the bank. And then they go to the federal government and say, well, we need COVID money, we're, um, we're kind of broke, we lost a bunch of money. Turns out that they lost money in their damn investments. And what they're, where they're gaining money is off of short staffing. And then they go, well, we can't staff anymore. We don't have any money. We know there's billions of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. We can't staff anymore. And then people are so miserable because of the horrible staffing and the underpayment that they are like, fuck it, I'm going to be a traveler. And they've driven all these people out of the, you know, everybody wants to just go to a place where they know what the tools are, they know who the patients are, they know it's in their community. That's what a vast majority of people who do this work want to do. But they've forced people out by treating them badly and not paying them enough. And now they're all putting their hands in there like, what do we do? It's just all travelers. And we're just, oh my God, we're hemorrhaging money. Travelers are so expensive. And it's like, you did this to yourselves and you can undo it today. Right. And it's the same with behavioral health care. Like you, they're like, well, we just don't have enough people to do the work. And you're like, wow, let's think about this, you know, and they know it and we know it and everybody knows it. And it's intentional. You know, they're making a profit off of a realm where there isn't enough money. There's not enough money to give the care in the first place. And they're making the care even worse so that they can not only profit, but also keep buying up other places. It's about power. I don't even know what it's about. Like the people that run these places, like I can't, I can't fathom who they are. Right. You know? I mean, I got to imagine certainly the folks who run situations like this, systems like this are not the first people that I think of. They're not the ones who are like most pressing on my heart. But I will say that I imagine that they live with a huge amount of dissociation with their own, own mental health challenges, right? Yeah. You know, because they're doing anti-human work. Mm -hmm. I keep coming back to another book I read by David Graeber called Bullshit Jobs. 40 to 50% of all the work done by people in this country, or maybe even in Western or industrial countries, uh, is actually not necessary. And not work that helps people, you know, that has a function. Like, are you farming? Are you mopping a floor? Are you making food? Are you delivering healthcare? Then you've got a job. Mm -hmm. Are you doing something else? Does your job matter? Are you helping anyone? Right. You know? So I think these guys all have bullshit jobs. Basically. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Be an administrator, hospital administrator. It's like, whoa, geez. Um, yeah. I mean, also, I just think about the opportunity cost of that, too, and the ways that we really are shooting ourselves in the foot. Like, uh, you know, we could be doing so much cool research. We could do so much awesome art. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. Like, uh, we could address climate change. I mean, we could... Uh, like absolutely reverse some of the negative impacts of racism. I mean, all sorts of stuff. We could do everything. Yeah. We could do it all. Um, 
yet instead we put people in bullshit jobs mm -hmm. that make them unhappy mm -hmm. and that uh, negatively impact all of us. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, you know, if people just had their analysis raised to that point, we could put a stop to it. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, people are just trying to survive. Yeah, and, and scarcity. Mm -hmm, the scarcity mentality. The crises that we're facing is really a crisis of self-organization. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Know. Yep. And so this is like, I think you're talking about the work that you do and that we all need to be doing as a consciousness raising exercise. And that, that is relational, mm -hmm. it's psychological, right? That to me is liberatory psychology. Yeah. The gold standard would be giving people that space to nurture their own ability to come to conclusions. One of the most useful and interesting things that I learned in graduate school, my like philosophically oriented existential phenomenological psychotherapy program, it was theorizing the question and theorizing conversation through the work of Hans Georg Gadamer, who of course, you know, he's standing on other people's shoulders. It's not just one dead white guy, but you know, actually thinking about the ways in which that can lead to change, how it can be therapeutic, right? How it is connective mm -hmm. and how it's a, yeah, I guess like a, the, the question as a therapeutic uh, driver of change, right? Um, and I think that that's totally what organizing is also. It feels therapeutic. And it's therapeutic to me. I mean, like if I'm spending all day, every day working towards an answer, towards a better world, man, I'm doing great. Like yeah. that's, and, and that's what I tell, you know, people who are reluctant to get involved. I'm like, yeah, you feel bad, but let me tell you, you know, it actually feels amazing. Yeah. You know, cause it looks from the outside, like, oh, you're steeped in problems all day long. You you're know, steeped that's in hope and solution. Yeah, exactly. Finding. I'm steeped in being a part of the solution. Mm -hmm. I feel that way very much about my work as well. You know, as an organizer, of course, but I mean, as a therapist too, right? Like to be with people in the struggle, in the suffering, like in the joys and thinking together about how to get free, right? Yeah. You know, at first I was like, liberatory psychology, I'm, I don't, I'm not a therapist. <laughs> and then, you know, but I realized that, you know, God, it's all of our work. You can understand why I asked you. I do. Yeah. To to speak on this topic, right? I think you're so intensely qualified for this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Well, and I think also like liberatory psychology needs to move past bounds of like, okay, well you do this job and you do this job and you do this job and it's like, okay, well you're over there in psychology but you're over there in teaching, you're over there in labor stuff, right? Like, no, it's all the same. Interdisciplinary. Yeah. We have different skills and different approaches, maybe in some ways different philosophies, but the values are the same. Mm -hmm. And it is so co-constructive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Co-constructive, what a great, I wasn't familiar with that, but it's mine now, ha <laughs> Yeah, please steal it. I stole it from someone. Mm -hmm. We all just borrow from each other, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that one of the themes of our conversation is like, what do we prioritize? What do we lift up, right? And, you know, if we lift up competition or individualism, if we lift up making money on the stock market or making a profit, right? Like yeah. that's going to lead to certain outcomes. Yeah. 
that's exactly it. And so how do we collectively reimagine and re-inscribe what it is we find to be important and then build systems that mm -hmm. support those yeah. things? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone should read Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. That's, I mean, speaking of reimagining or maybe shedding mm -hmm. more than reimagining, you know, shedding all this stuff that's going on now and coming to mm -hmm. who we truly are. Yeah. In, in relationship with nature and each other. Totally. Her words and her thoughts about reciprocity. Uh, I mean, yeah. and gift economy, right? Like, I imagine that a liberatory psychology and a liberatory world will have to return back and honor indigenous ways of knowing. Oh my God. Yeah. I wonder, does decolonize psychology, liberatory psychology, whatever we want to call it, necessitate or imply an unconditional love for humanity? Yeah, absolutely. I think part of our malaise is that we prize aspects of humanity and we just devalue other aspects and we certainly devalue nature. I think unconditional love has to be for our potential to become human again. And becoming human again looks like our values getting rearranged and our relationship with nature and each other getting re rearranged. I don't love, you know, the guy that almost killed me on I-5 the other day because he was looking at his phone and just drifted into my lane, mm -hmm. you know. Oh. I don't love that, really. I don't love the people who I have to talk to all day every day about how they're running their healthcare and behavioral healthcare agencies and they constantly look at me like I'm crazy, like, well, that's not in the budget, you know. Mm -hmm. I had a high school teacher, Jerry Elarth, who was just a god to us. He was he taught a class called Science Fiction and World Philosophy. Ooh. And um, he talked about the world as having been perverted and not in like a sexual sense, but as in a what the original meaning of the word perverted people who want to count things instead of love things are perverted. And I, I don't love that they've become this in their nature, but I also have a deep, strong belief that we can, we can become different and that we nurtured that person into existence and we can nurture that person into a different existence. You know, we can make this an accommodating place to be so that we can all become someone who contributes to the world. And that notion, I love un unconditionally. Humanity as a whole, I love unconditionally, which is why I would like to be a, even a small part of shepherding humanity in a direction that takes us towards liberation. This podcast was edited by Charlie Spears. Theme music by Bang Quang. Special thanks to Dr. James Norris and Dr. Erica Lillette for their mentorship and enthusiastic support with this project. 
I'm your ever-curious host, Ava Bravada-Keating. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.